Now, last week we were talking about how do we stand firm in our convictions. We're really, this is based off of the book of Daniel. And, uh, you know, and so last week we were talking about Daniel and he had several friends who were, I, I want to say recruited, but that's not really drafted would be a more accurate term because it was really against their will. They were servants. And yet they were brought into a foreign land that's called Babylon and there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And he challenged, and last week we looked at this, is he challenged their identity. He changed their names. And I talked to you last week about that. I won't go into it all again. Uh, but he ch- the first thing they did was they changed their name. They changed who they knew themselves to be. You know, and so culture is always going to do that. It's going to try to get you to identify by something other than what God has called you or created you and designed you for. And so, you know, and that happens. It still happens to us today. You know, and, and you have to be careful. And so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, go back and listen. Uh, because I can tell you the enemy has a name for you and he's trying to convince you to buy into it. Why? Because as a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs says, let me say it this way, as you believe yourself to be, that's what you're going to live up to. I'm a failure. Guess what you're going to live up to? I'm a failure. And even if you get to a place of some level of success, you'll still say, I'm a failure. And it will never be enough. Why? Because you're identifying with something that God has not called you. And so, but we see, and so we live in this culture. We live in this culture today, and it's very interesting. Because how do we stand firm to our convictions? How do we stand firm to the word of God and yet still reach and love and impact people who disagree with us? I shared with you this thought last week is that we can be right and help nobody. And that's where much of the church sits. They sit in this place where, Dad, we're right, y'all are wrong, y'all going to hell, I'm going to heaven and stinks to be you. But that doesn't really help them because they're still going to hell. The Bible says that God placed us here as missionaries. And we'll look at this here in the next few minutes. But see, even with Daniel and his friends, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four little Jewish, I say little, they were young men. They were teenagers. But the first assault was on their identity. The second assault was on their mentality, their way of thinking. Because Nebuchadnezzar said, you take them, you're going to change their name, but I want you to teach them the language and the knowledge of our day. In other words, forget about Jerusalem, forget about Judah, forget about your heritage. I need you to learn to think differently. And this morning we're going to look at this, what what we're calling the Babylon mentality. Now this is nothing new. It actually existed, I'll show you this here in a few minutes, from the very beginning of your Bible, and God addresses it all the way in the end in Revelations. And it is throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, where God addresses the king of Babylon. Now, there was a physical, natural king of Babylon, but yet God is not just speaking to a natural man, although it's called a double meaning. In other words, yes, it applies to that particular individual, but God is also addressing a spirit that's at work. I mean, I'll remind you, the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this present world. So there are spirits at work. Now, I'm not saying that everywhere that we look, there's a demon. But what I am telling you is there is a mentality that if the devil can get you to think the way that he wants you to think, he's going to win. And he's going to rob from you what God has for you. And so, but even in the midst of all of this, I believe, and I love the way that he, that he titled this, is that we can stand firm and still love well. And I don't have to, in other words, I can still love people and not have to compromise 
what I believe and what I see in Scripture to still be able to reach people. You know, one of the things that I've seen and one of the way I've said this is that we've lost the ability in our culture to agree to disagree. It's I'm right and you're wrong and there is no other conversation to be had. Used to, you could talk to an unbelieving friend. They'd say, what do you believe? And you could have a conversation. What do you believe? All right, well, cool. We're still friends. And yet today it's so divisive that if I'm not like you, you're not like me. We cannot talk. We cannot fellowship. We can't. And that's even crept into the church. That's where we get the whole idea. That's the reason we have the phrase, us four and no more. Why? Because I know the other three people in the room and we all just alike. And I want to keep it that way. Well, that's great. You four are going to go to heaven. But God's going to ask you, who'd you bring with you? And that's where, why we have to be careful in this. And so I want to share some things with you. Let me share this thought with you. Well, let me say it this way. Is that I believe that we can stand firm and we don't have to isolate ourselves. We don't have to move into the middle of nowhere and never talk to another human being. And when Jesus comes back, praise the Lord, I'm on the first load. Well, that's great for you. But what about the people that you're called to touch? God's going to bring, what, you across people's paths. We pray that all the time. Lord, send somebody across their path. You might be the answer to somebody else's prayer. And God's going to say, I sent you there that day. Oh, well, you didn't see the way they were dressed. You didn't see, they were smoking a cigarette. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they didn't want to hear what. Did God send you there? Oh, well, God, they weren't smoking a cigarette. That was drugs. I mean, that was marijuana. I know the smell. And, you know, they, weren't, they didn't want to hear nothing about God. Well, how do you know? How do I know? The Bible says that we judge the outward, but God knows the heart. So many times we can write people off that God's saying, I sent you there to touch that person. And so many times, even in the, you know, I'll use this as an example because this is something everybody can understand, is that every culture is not good or bad. Culture just is. Every home has a culture. Every church has a culture. Every business has a culture. I mean, I've worked in places where suspicion was the culture. You were guilty until proven innocent. Anybody ever worked in a place like that? I mean, there was no such thing that that we can trust you. We don't trust nobody. If there's money involved, we need five people in the room. Everybody's eyes open. Everybody looking or somebody stole something. That's a culture. Why? Because somebody probably did wrong. And so now they've shifted a culture to suspicion. And, And so, but here's the thing about culture is that you can change culture. You can set culture. So here's the question or here's a thought for you is that we can either set culture or we'll reflect the culture. Much like we have a thermostat back there on the wall, which praise the Lord is working today because you got some nice air conditioner. But guess what? This room didn't cool down by itself. That air conditioner did not just, some angel did not come down and touch that air conditioner and boom, it kicked on. Oh, the Lord wanted us to be cool today. No, that thing's programmable. And I set that thing to come on at a certain time. And it comes on at a certain temperature. And you might be a little cold, but I'm good. And since I'm the one who said it, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> See, that thermostat changes this room. We are called to change our culture. It is not supposed to change us. So we have to have what our convictions and our core values that we understand. Also, And so what happens though is many times people go to extremes in that. They either say, well, we're going to be so legalistic 
that we're going to turn everybody off. Or they say, hey, we have to accommodate the word of God to reach this culture. No, first off, we don't have the authority to change the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not the word of David. I mean, I, I don't have the authority of, to change God's word. And neither do you. Neither does anybody else. I may not necessarily like everything that the Bible has to say to me. But I have a choice. Am I going to submit because I say that Jesus is Savior, which is Lord, which is like supreme... You know, you're in charge. You're the boss. I'm not the boss. And so we have this... this This moment here where we have to make a decision is that we can't run away from culture thinking it's going to get better by itself. No, it's not going to get better by itself. We have to have an impact in our culture. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 17. It's in the middle of a prayer that he prays. Verse 15, he says, he's praying to the Father. And Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. In other words, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Lord, I'm not asking because, I mean, how many times have we probably said, Lord, just, why don't you just come on back and let's just wrap this thing up real quick? Why? The Bible says that God is long-suffering, that none would perish. Yeah. In other words, God is giving people time. Now, selfishly, we're like, hey, let's, let's go. <laughs> but yet, God is not that way. And yet, Jesus even prays. He says, keep them safe from the evil one. Verse 16 says, they do not belong to the world any more than I do. Do you realize you don't belong to this world any more than Jesus himself did? Now, you did at one time. I did at one time. I did belong to this world. To all of its desires, to all of its whims. But the Bible says, I've been recreated anew in Christ. You've been recreated brand new with a new nature. We call it salvation. So this world, is, let me say it this way, is no longer supposed to have its hooks in me. I'm supposed to be living outside of this culture, but yet still in it. He says in verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Verse 17, he says, teach them your word, which is truth. Verse 18, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So we have this interesting moment here where God has obviously placed us into, the, into where we live, into the culture, into the, the city and the area that we live and the family that we are for what purpose? The Bible says that we are to be salt and light. What does salt and light do? They make things better and brighter, right? I mean, I like salt. I like salt a lot, maybe a little too much. How much salt is enough? Keep putting it on there. Light is better. You can see where you're going in the light. And yet that's what the Bible and Jesus said that he is calling us to be. Is to be salt and light. The message translation of that verse actually says that we're called to bring out the God colors in the earth. I like that one. The God colors. Like people should look at us and be like, "Mm, something different about you. Not like in a strange, weird, funky kind of way. Just in a I'm jealous kind of way. Like you got something I don't have. What is that? You have a joy that I can't understand. You deal with stuff, but you deal with a lot differently than I do. What is that? That's the presence of God. And we're called to to be different. So the question becomes is how do we live in a culture but not become part of it and still maintain some influence? We have to love well. 
Jesus loved well. We looked at this last week with the woman caught in adultery. It's the grace and truth. Jesus gave grace to those who needed it, but he also gave them truth. He didn't give grace with no truth. I shared that thought with you last week. Is that grace without truth is what? Meaningless. Truth without some grace is just mean. It's just mean. So we have to learn how to do both of these things. And so, but if we're going to do this, we have to understand how Daniel and his friends did this in the middle of a godless, pagan society. Because they influenced their culture. And so we want to look at some things this morning specifically about this, what, I, what we're calling the, the um, Babylon mentality. It's a way of thinking. And really, like I said, it, it predates Babylon. So it's not just about this nation that existed in the past. This is about a mentality that's really, that Satan is trying to get all of us to buy into. Why? Because it's his mentality. And yet, if we're not careful, we can so easily slip into it. So let me give you a little bit of, uh, of just some back story here. Is that the book of Daniel is set in the land of Babylon. Uh, Babylon today is actually modern day Iraq. That's the same dirt, the same place. That's where it would actually be uh, if you look on, on an ancient map to today. But it's not just so much about a location as it is about a mentality. It's a spirit that, is, that has existed and does exist today. You know, it, yes, we're looking at a natural kingdom but yet if we're not careful and we don't understand how the enemy works guess what we're going to get drug into his plans for our life and he's going to steal kill and destroy from us and we're not going to know how or why we're just saying man things are chaotic things aren't working how we're processing things and so uh, if you have your bibles turn with me to genesis chapter 3 this is in the this is in the garden of eden this is really the first place we see this but i want to read these these scriptures to you here because i want you to see a few things This is the temptation of Adam and Eve. But in verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. It says, One day he asked the woman, Did God really say not to eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Which, right there, we already know he's lying because that's not what God said. He said, Just don't eat that one. But yet he says, Did God really say? See, already the enemy's twisting and and turning. She responds and says, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. The serpent responds and says, you won't die. It says, God knows in verse 5 that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God knowing both good and evil. Verse 6, there's four words. The woman was convinced. What happens in this moment? Satan comes to make an accusation against God and Eve believes it. Says she was convinced. She believed in her heart that, yeah, God's trying to keep something from me. See, Satan has now put himself not just as a rival, but really put himself above God saying, Eve, I know better than God knows for you. And Eve, I know better for you than even you know for you. So you need to listen to me. It goes on, it says that she saw because she was convinced. In other words, her mentality has now shifted. And because her mentality has shifted, now what she sees changes. Because she had been looking at the same tree. And it says she saw that tree that it was beautiful and its fruit was delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. Well, did God not already give them all the wisdom they needed? And yet, all of a sudden now she feels this lack and this longing for something that God had already given her. 
So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. So Adam doesn't get a pass in this deal. He was standing right there and was just quiet. So he ate it too. And this is what happens. They get tricked. They get duped. And it says at the very moment, because look, I want, I want you to see this very clearly. When the mentality shifts, Satan says, look, you're going to get wisdom. You're going to understand all this new stuff that you've never known. And I want you to see instantly how fast the tone changes. In verse 7, it says, at that moment, the very moment that they bit into the apple, their eyes were opened. So that did happen. He said, hey, if you do this, your eyes are going to be open to something you've never seen. And it says, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So instantly what happens is, not only did they challenge or question God, instantly their eyes were open and all of a sudden something they had never experienced came into the picture, which was shame, which was, you know, a reason. Let me say it this way. It was a reason to distance themselves from God. They had never had reason to run from God until shame came in the picture. And it all started with what? A thought, a decision, a mentality that came. And so what happens is, and this is what, part of what happens and with this mentality that if we're not careful, will work its way into our heart is that Satan comes to what? To question God and to elevate us. Now, ultimately, he wants to elevate himself. But he, wants, he needs to what? First, get us out from underneath the covering of God so that we say, hey, I know better. See, we do this all the time. We all do. Me included. There are times that we may know what the Bible says. We're like, yeah, but. And you can say, yeah, but. The real answer is, I know better. You've just put yourself equal, if not above God. This is what Satan does. He wants to try to elevate, get us to elevate ourselves in our own thoughts, our own, own opinions. And so here's one of the lies that the enemy shares that we see. And, and, and if you really think about this, you, you'll see where the enemy has probably said this in some way to you. The first lie of the enemy is, I'm all about you. I'm here for your good. I'm here for you to have pleasure. I'm here for you to get what you need and what you want. I'm here for you. God's just some old fuddy-duddy who's really just here for himself. Satan comes and says, hey, I'm here so you can have some fun. God's just here to ruin all your fun. That's the mentality that Satan will use against us. God's all about himself. He's not really for you. God just wants what he wants for him. So we see, and if we're all honest, we would say, yeah, there's times that I've I've thought something along those lines. And yet this mentality is still very pervasive today. And the enemy, let me say it this way. He keeps going to the well because it keeps working. He keeps going. Why? Because it keeps working. It keeps working. It keeps working. You know, in uh, Genesis chapter 11, there's the account of the Tower of Babel. Now, Babel is part of the root of the word Babylon. Now, many of you know the story of the Tower of Babel. A group of people got together and they said, man, we're going to build a tower to heaven. We're going to build ourselves a city. Now, to this point, people had only really known of, try, of really seeing and trusting the Lord to build. But now they, a group has gotten together and said, look, we're going to build our own city. Why? So that we will be famous. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We don't have to trust the Lord. We're self-sufficient. And the Bible says that God came down. It's in Genesis chapter 11. 
God came down and confused their language. The word Babel actually means confusion. It's chaotic. It's really what produces chaos. Let me say it another way. It's a deranged mentality. How does somebody who is seemingly sane one day, the next day, go into a room full of people that they know and start shooting them? Or maybe into a place where they don't know anybody. It's just a total random act. Because it's chaos. It's it's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to produce chaos in our lives. He wants to produce chaos in our society. I mean, that describes the day in which we live. It's just chaotic. I mean, every day you look on the news, it's like, what crazy things happened since I last was awake? Something else surely has happened. And it's just craziness. Even in the book of Revelation, we're going to look at a couple verses here where God actually speaks directly about Babylon. In, verse, um, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. Now, chapter 17 and 18, God addresses Babylon as, as really as, a, as the spirit behind Babylon, if you want to say it that way. And it's God's judgment, both chapters. You can go read it. It's pretty graphic. Well, what is that? That's, I mean, the book of Revelations is all God's, basically, it's his unveiling the end times. What's going to happen? Before he comes, while he comes, after he comes, what's going to happen after, you know, even after when we go to, what's going to be going on? He, he addresses it. But in verse 5 of chapter 17, I just want to read this one verse. It says, a mysterious name was written on her forehead. This is a beast in the, in the book of Revelations. And this is what it says. It says, Babylon the great, the mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. Everything ungodly is attributed to this mentality, to this way of thinking, to the spirit that's at work. In Isaiah chapter 47, again, God is speaking. The heading of this says, the fall of Babylon. Now, this is the prophet Isaiah. This is the very middle of the Bible. And he says this. He says, listen to this, you pleasure-loving kingdom. Do we not live in that day and age today? It's not about what's right. It's about what do we want. It's about feeling. It's about, well, you know, I know this isn't right, but I feel right. It's just what, whatever's good for you is good for you. Forget about consequences. Who cares? You will care. <laughs> you will. Why? Because sin has a wage. The Bible's very clear on that. It says here in verse 8, he says, Listen, you pleasure-loving kingdom, living at ease and feeling secure. I'm just happy. Everything's good. You ever met somebody who is far away from God and everything seems to just be going their way? It's just like, man, how? God, I thought that the story hasn't finished yet. Because the enemy will get his. He will. It's not God that brings judgment on people. Not right now. The Bible says all judgment was laid on the back of Christ on the cross. God's judgment has been settled on us. But Satan says, you've sown a seed and I want my harvest. He says, you say, second part of verse 8, I am the only one and there's no one like me. Now think about this. This is a mentality that even people today think. I am. I am. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
God revealed himself as I am that I am. And yet here's the spirit saying, I am and there's no one besides me. It says, I will never be a widow or lose my children. Verse 9 says, well, both of these things will come upon you in a moment. Widowhood and the loss of your children. It says, yes, calamities will come upon you despite your witchcraft and your magic. So, in other words, what he's saying is, look, there's calamity coming and all your power won't do anything to stop it. Now, he's speaking to an evil spirit here. But I need you to realize that this spirit can work in our lives even as believers. Verse 10, he says, you felt so secure in your wickedness. You ever, found, you ever been around somebody who was just proud of their sin? Just happy. You just want to push it. Especially if they know you're a believer. Especially if you're close to them. They just kind of want to shove it in your face. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. They won't even acknowledge that God is everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows the thought before you think it. He knows the word before you say it. He knows everything that you've never uttered out of your mouth but was in your heart. And yet they would say, ah, no one sees it. It says, but your wisdom and knowledge have led you astray. Your wisdom and knowledge have led you astray. And you have said, I am the only one and there is no other. There is no other. See, we live in, I'll give you a modern day term for this, selfie. We live in a self just controlled society. You know, even the idea of, well, you know, I mean, like people like my grandfather, many of you, they went to war for what? The greater good. There is no such thing really in our culture much of that anymore. It's like I'm looking out for numero uno. I mean, I'm going to take a picture of myself by myself, and I don't want anybody else eavesdropping on my photo. I'm going to crop you out. Because it's all about me. Right? I mean. We see this in our culture. I mean we got selfie sticks. So we can get a better angle. Make sure we get people out. You know I mean it's just. It's the culture. It's the mindset. It's where you're so self absorbed. Where all you think about is you. And all you think about is how great you are. How great I am. Now, we don't think of it like that, but that is the root. I'm somebody. I'm somebody special. That's why we get attitudes. I don't deserve to be talked to like that. You know who you're talking to? Now, people should be respectful, but just... And I believe, I mean, I do believe that. But why do we... Instead of thinking, man, you must be having a really bad day. I mean, I've really endeavored to do this is when people respond harshly to me to think first, not about me, but to say, I wonder what happened to you today. I wonder what's on your mind. I wonder what's weighing your heart down right now. And you're snapping, not because of me. I'm still working on that, but I try. I don't want to think about myself first. I want to have some compassion for, I mean, Jesus was the ultimate example of this. Hanging on the cross to people who were cussing him, throwing things at him, spitting on him. I mean, you spit on me, we might fight. I'm just going to tell you. Like, I can handle a lot of things, but stay out of my space. <laughs> and yet his prayer was, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You want to talk about loving well. Like, that's, 
that might be one of the most challenging verses of Scripture anywhere in all of Scripture. Because it's personal. You spit on me. I mean, like, <laughs> it's easy to think about somebody spitting on Jesus. Think about somebody spitting in your face. Like, I would not handle that well. I just tell you, I, I, it would take a whole lot of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to hold me back. <laughs> no doubt about it. And yet say, forgive them. Like, like, before they even say, I'm sorry, it'd be like going, like they spit on you and you go, I forgive you. That's not my first thought. That is not my first thought. Yet that's what Jesus was doing. He was perfectly right. And yet still gave grace. So here's the motto of Babylon. We already looked at this, but the, their motto would be this. I am and there's none like me. What was that old nursery rhyme that the girl looked in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall? Who's the fairest of them all? I mean, that's, I don't even know what, what that comes from, but what is it? Snow White. There you go. I knew somebody would know. I mean, we, we live in that day and that age, right? That's just the norm. I mean, we just do. I mean, I see stuff on social media and I'm like, I know you and you don't look like that. <laughs> I mean, even to the point where I've had to go to Darren and be like, is this so-and-so? Yeah. Like, they don't even look like them. Why? They're trying to portray something that they're not. Yeah. Or you get somebody on their dream vacation and I'm going, I know you and you're broke. What? They're trying to portray an image. Why? Because they want to look good. They want to have this. See, the devil wants us to live in this fake place. It's not real. See, God wants you to live in a real place and enjoy it. That's the difference. Babylon always exalts self. It's self-adoring. It's self-building. Well, I, I built this. I have this. I have that. Stuff. Self-building would be this. God, you stay on Sundays and I'll come talk to you when I need you. Don't you come talk to me on a Monday. A lot, there's a lot of Christians who live like that. Tuesday, God, you, you're Sunday. I'll come talk to you when I need you. I think sometimes we need to remember how, I mean, we were singing about it a minute ago, how great God is. The Bible says our life is but a vapor before him. And if he so chose, he could wipe us out in a moment. He could just flick us right off the planet. And yet somehow this mentality creeps into our life to somehow think that now we get to negotiate with God. Like that I know better. I mean, I love in Proverbs where it talks about, and there's several other occasions, even in the book of Job, where there's like this challenge to God. And his response is, were you there when I framed the world? Like God's like, let me just remind you, before all of this, I am. Like God, if I, you know, if you ever had the thought, if I was God, I would. I mean, you know what I'm saying, like. I mean, it's a good thing for some people that I'm not God because they would not be here. Anybody? 
witness with that. Take you out, take you out, take you out twice. I mean, you know, like go and kick you to make sure, you know, I mean, but yet it's, I mean, we, we, we laugh about it, but honestly, if we look into our life and we honestly take a very real assessment, what areas of our, of our life have we said, God, I don't need you. God, I don't want you. I mean, we were singing the song, and he talks about, you know, um, I don't remember the exact lyric, um, Adam, you asked him, he talks about the breath in my lungs. Well, let me ask you this. Who put the breath in your lungs? Who made the lungs that the air is in? Who put you in the place where you are? It's not even really your breath that you're singing with, that you're praising with, that you're exalting with. It's the breath of God that he has breathed into your lungs, and he's allowed you to live today. Now, I know that's harsh. But it is true. And so many times we think, well, I've done this. I've done that. I've had examples in, in, in my past of things where, man, I just thought, man, through my wisdom and through my brilliance, we did this. Whatever it may have been. And then given a little bit of time, I came to realize, I tried that again. It didn't go so well. It didn't go well at all. And I had to come to the realization, it was God. It had nothing to do with me. I thought we were so smart. I thought we were so just sharp on these things. And without God, it all came to nothing. He just happened to choose to use me. He chose to allow me to be a part of what he was doing. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you necessarily. He wants us. There's a big difference. See, Babylon exalts self. Self-adoring, self-building, self-indulging. I can do whatever I want. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want. That's pretty good synopsis of our culture today. Don't tell me no. But see, here's the, the thing about this. Not only does it elevate self, but it also has to lower God. As in, he is not supreme. He's just average. He's normal. He's like a coach. He can make, he can suggest something to you, but you don't have to do it. That's what the enemy would love us to believe. Now I want you to hear this, and this is really um, what got Satan cast out of heaven. Was his mentality, was his heart, was his way of thinking. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 in the Amplified. This is what the Bible says about him. He says, how... You have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Now, Satan was an angel. The Bible says he was one of the top tier angels. We call them archangels. There's only a handful that we know of in all of Scripture, and he was one. From what I can tell, one of four. I may be off on my number, but that's what I can tell. So, pretty elite in heaven. He says, star of the morning. Son of the dawn. He says, you have been cut down to the ground. You, have been, or you who have weakened the nations, king of Babylon. So here we see that Satan is actually called the king of Babylon. He says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Not equal, above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. In the remote parts of the north. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. See, this is the mentality of of the devil himself. 
This was right before he got cast out of heaven. And this is basically God saying, this is why I just fully, why I'm justified in executing this against you and throwing you out of heaven. Because what? You have exalted yourself. You, you've allowed pride to come in. See, the enemy wants to fight against what even what we see in Scripture and what you may even hear other people tell you. You may say things, well, God doesn't love you. And that may be your thought. Well, God doesn't love me. Who, who lovingly would tell me that I can't have something that I want? Now, I dealt with teenagers for a long time. And I want to give you an example of this. I dealt with many teenagers who were in what I would consider toxic relationships. And I would flat tell them, you need to get out of that relationship. I would tell our young ladies, he's only in a relationship with you for one thing, and it ain't your beauty. And unfortunately, I had to watch and walk with many of those young girls as I watched those young men take advantage of those girls. I had one show up at my youth group one night. I very quickly said, hey, you got to go. I thought anybody's invited not you. Because you're a wolf. And I'm a shepherd. And if you don't leave, I'm going to go grab a stick. <laughs> I got a pool table. And I was dead serious. See, they were in toxic relationships. And because I love them, I said, that's toxic and you need to get away. See, sin is toxic. And a loving God says, get away from it. Why? Because it's toxic. It will hurt you. Well, yeah, but I want it. But it's going to hurt you. I can tell you, for both of my kids, I will know their friends. Their friends will be at my house. Because I'm going to know their friends as maybe not as well, but I'm going to try. Why? Because I want to know who they're hanging around. I want to know who they're with. I love them too much to leave them to themselves to figure it out. See, God loves us too much to let us try to figure it out. Another lie is that God isn't for me. Well, if God was for you, this wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. Now, this is a lie of the enemy that he's very likely at the reason and, the, and at fault for the very thing he's accusing God for. If God was for you, he wouldn't allow that to happen. I talked about that with mass shootings. Where was God in all of that? He was still there. He was still there and first responders and police and, and all these people who help, even just good citizen people that help usher people out and get people out of harm's way. God was still there. But we still do live in a fallen world and people are, God will let us make our decisions. Doesn't mean that we'll always understand everything. Now we can see this mentality very clearly and it comes out of Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to read all of this just for the sake of time, but um, I've got a, a couple of verses I want to show you. Now right after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is right on the heels of them coming out of the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar is glorifying God. Now he did this with Daniel even as he interpreted dreams previously throughout the book of Daniel. But... In verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and prospering in my palace. In other words, I'm good. I'm good. Things are great for me. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. In other words, I have created this place of, of luxury. I have created this palace. He's now taking credit, really, for what God is doing. 
So now he becomes puffed up. And so, um, for, again, for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase what happens. Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep. He has a dream. There's this massive tree that he is seen that has grown, and it says that the limbs go out and they cover large portions of the earth. I mean, this thing was just, it was large in comparison to the earth. Let's just say it that way. What happens is an angel flies in, cuts the tree down. There's a stump that remains. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and he's kind of freaked out because he's like, what does that mean? So he gets all of his counselors, all of his advisors, all his sorcerers in. He says, somebody tell me. Everybody's like, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And they're like, hey, Daniel, he's a godly man. Let me say it this way. Daniel's about to influence culture. They call in Daniel and he says, Daniel, tell me the interpretation to my dream. You go and read it and it says that Daniel was actually a little bit um, concerned about the interpretation of the dream because he knew what it meant. Yet he still had to be true to what God had told him. And so there's kind of this dialogue back and forth. And so Daniel comes back with a response to him. And he says in verse 22 of Daniel 4, he says, The tree is you, O king. Well, that may not sound like a big deal. What he's saying is God's getting ready to deal with you. You're about to be cut down. Well, that's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. He was the ruler of the known world. And yet, God is getting ready to deal with Nebuchadnezzar. Drop down to verse 25, and he begins to tell him of the interpretation of the dream. What does this mean? Verse 25, he says, That you shall be driven from mankind, and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field, and that you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, so seven years shall pass over you until you know without any doubt. Oh, wait, I'm reading the Amplified Bible. Y'all are probably like, what in the world is he reading? I'll read up here. It says, you will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and be uh, drenched with the dew of heaven. Verse 26, please. He says, seven periods of time will pass uh, while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives you to anyone that he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, when you come to your senses. See, here's the thing about God. God restores. And if God wanted to do away with Nebuchadnezzar, he would have just ripped the tree up from his roots. And just said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're done. But he didn't. He left the roots and the stump. Why? Because God says, I will restore. Now, if you go and read this, Daniel actually tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna, your, your mind, your mentality will be replaced with that of an animal. He actually tells him that. In other words, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for seven years. Now, remember Babel, confusion, chaos, deranged. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for seven years. I mean, to the point where we even see it here in verse 30. I believe it's verse 30. Oh, I've got to get in the right translation. I memorize these things in certain translations and I'll see them in other ones. It throws me off. Verse 30. This happens, Nebuchadnezzar. After this, he had a chance. Daniel told him. It's about a year later. 
But he steps up onto his balcony of his palace. And he says, as I looked across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power, by my own mighty power, I have built this uh, beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Now he built one of the, or was responsible, I should say, for what they call the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. We would consider it one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. And yet he says, I made these plants. I made them grow. No, you didn't make the plants. But yet, look what I did. Look at the city that I have built. Daniel gives him the warning and says, look, for seven years. In other words, what's happening? God's to humble you. I'm about to let you know who's really in charge here. So for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar goes out and the Bible says that his hair grew long and his he, that he was actually like, I forgot how it said it, but I think it was that his nails were like talons, like an eagle's talons. Like he's just out there in the, and what, you're like, well, what does the do? It means he had no dry place to go. He was out there like an animal. Crazy, out of his mind. Verse 34 of Daniel 4, it says, After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. He says, My sanity returned. And I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored Him who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and His kingdom is eternal. He says, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to Him. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was somebody. Now he's like, yo, jokers, we ain't got jack. We are nothing compared to Him. He does as He pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop Him or say to Him, what do you mean by doing these things? It says in verse 36, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles, they sought me out and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even, great honor, uh, with even greater honor than before. It says in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the God of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. Now think about this. God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're going to go out there and eat grass like a cow. And here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, all of God's ways are right and true. In other words, what he's saying is, my, my, my judgment is accurate. God was right in what he did. But that's why he glorifies God. And, and because Nebuchadnezzar, what, had humbled himself to acknowledge God, God restored everything. God restored everything that the enemy was trying to, to steal from Nebuchadnezzar. So there are three things that I want to share with you quickly as I'm wrapping up. Three ways that we can overcome this mentality. It's not hard. It's not difficult. We just have to do it with our heart. Here's the first one. We have to make a decision that I will exalt God. In other words, what does exalt mean? Make big. I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to exalt Him. I mean, it's like we were singing earlier. Great are you, God. What I'm saying is, God, you are great and I am not. That you have all knowledge and all wisdom. And God, I am dependent upon you for my next breath. For the next, I have nothing without you. See, many times in church we get kind of funny about, well, you know, they got a little excited and this and that. But we don't have any problem with it on Saturday afternoon. You know, I mean, we just, you know, I was watching the NBA finals and watching some of the shots. And they take that big wide shot. From like the top of the arena, somebody hits a shot and everybody jumps to their feet and it looks like just a massive wave. Just all this crazy. Nobody thinks anything of that. You're called a fan. You do that in church, they call you a fanatic. Like you're strange, you're weird. Let me just submit something to you. I mean, 
we got, some of us got tattoos on our bodies. Like, you know, I mean, I carry the symbol of my team. Do they know your name? Because the Bible says that God tattooed your name on his hand. That he shed his blood for you. To pay for your sins. To give you an eternal home with him. A place of safety and a place of good. And yet we'll get more excited that our team does something good. We'll be more loyal to a team that doesn't know our name and all they do is take our money. Then we will to a God who loves us, provides for us, heals us, saves us, delivers us. He is worthy to be exalted. He alone is worthy to be exalted. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, like, I've had this thought in my mind of what would it be like if every single church in our city would go down there to that amphitheater and begin to worship God together? Would it be louder than a Friday night football game? I don't know. But yet God is worthy to be exalted. And I can't determine what everybody else does, but I can determine what I do. I mean, here's a thought for you. The Bible says that we can lift up holy hands. That I can worship God. Who made the hands holy? It wasn't me. It wasn't you. It was the blood of Christ that was shed for us that now we could, because we could just lift up hands. But no, the Bible says we can lift up holy hands. Hands that have been washed and cleansed. He's worthy to be exalted. Psalms 145 verse 1 says, I will exalt you, my God and my King, and praise you forever and ever. The second thing that we need to do, so we need to, it's, it's an act of our will. See, our will is involved. You remember Satan said, I will exalt myself. I will, I will, I will. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says what? Not my will, but your will be done. A laying down of self to what? To the one who has saved us. Second thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge God. Like every day. Lord, thank you for letting me wake up today. Thank you for letting me go to work today. Thank you for letting me have another day with my kids and my spouse. God, thank you for today I have health that I can go to work. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the skills, the aptitude. The abilities that you've given me. They're not mine. Thank you for the wisdom that you've poured into my life. It's your wisdom. It's not mine. See, it's keeping a right mindset, a right, a proper perspective of who we are. We got to acknowledge God. Everything good in my life came from Him. Everything good in my life came from Him. Now, I want to be faithful with everything He places in my life, but it still came from Him. All of my effort. I mean, you know, one of the verses that the Lord really stirred in my heart when I first came here was this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors, labors in vain. Unless, let me say it this way, unless the Lord builds your life, all your labor don't matter. Because it can all go away that fast. In a moment. But if God builds your house, if God will build your life, guess what? It will stand the test of time. It will stand the test of culture. And you will be able to honor and praise and testify to the goodness of God. We have to acknowledge God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 out of the Living Bible says, What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? 
And if all you have is from God, why act as though you've accomplished something on your own? God, everything I have is a gift from you. Everything. You're like, well, God ain't blessed me with nothing. You live in America. Let me tell you, you live in the most blessed nation on the planet. We got lots of problems. I'll be the first to tell you that. We need to pray. The Bible actually talks about this. But, I mean, the Bible even, even about our nation says, If my people, if my people, if my people, if my people will pray, I will hear and I will respond. If my people would. It didn't say if the nation would turn. It says if my people would pray. Many times we'd rather complain than pray. We need to stop complaining and start praying. Here's the third thing. The third, I will. So it's a decision that we make. I will humble myself. Humility is a choice. Humility is a choice. Look, humility, humility is coming. Whether it be through life. You ever had life humble you? Like it wasn't God. It wasn't the devil. It was just life. I didn't know what I thought I knew. That didn't play out like I thought it would. Man, I was so confident that this whatever was just going to happen just the way I thought. It was all the things were going to lay out perfectly. And life can humble you. Circumstances can humble you. See, the difference is if we'll choose humility, we get to experience humility. If we refuse to be humble, what happens? Humiliation comes. It's embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing. James chapter 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before God and He will lift you up in honor. So here's the difference. When we humble ourselves, the Bible says to demote or lower our own estimation. That's the way the Amplified Bible says this. It says if we would lower ourselves, God doesn't leave us low. He picks us up. What Nebuchadnezzar did was Nebuchadnezzar had lifted and exalted himself up. Therefore, God had to humble him. And yet here God says, if you will lower yourself, I will exalt you. I'll, I'll get you to the place. That way that what? When, even when we get there, God, it's just you. It's just your goodness in my life. I'm not that smart. I'm not that good. It's not about me. It's about the goodness and the glory of God. Because he's worthy and deserving of all praise, of all credit, of all, of all honor in my life. I've just been faithful with what he put in my hands to do. See, so many times, you know, and even in our culture, this, even the, the idea of sin is, can be complicated. People want to know, what is sin? What isn't sin? Here's very simply, the mo- one of the most basic, simplest definitions of sin I've ever heard is very simply, sin is choosing my way, not God's. Because what that is, is me saying that I'm more, I know more. I'm more wise. I, I know what's best for me. It's me choosing what I want over what God says. That's sin. And you may be here today. You may be dealing with things in your life. You may be dealing with, you may still be dealing with things from your past. Here's what I can tell you. Is that the chaos that the enemy would want to bring into your life because of this mentality, Jesus came to break. And it can be. And just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're exempt from this. The enemy will still fight us tooth and nail tooth and nail constantly but the good news is is we have a risen Savior who came to set us free and you may be here this morning we're going to worship here in just a few moments together but this would be my encouragement to you this morning is as we worship do a heart check do a self-evaluation are there areas of my life that I'm going my way and not God's way 
Are there things that I'm doing, participating, looking, watching, listening, that it's my way, not God's way? Are, are there influences that I'm allowing to come into my life? Are there, are there processes of thought that I'm allowing to roll around that are obviously in violation of God's Word, but I allow them and even ponder them over and over and over again? See, the chaos of Babylon that the enemy wants to bring into your life can be replaced by the peace of God. And that's what God wants to do this morning for you. So even as we worship... Just take a moment, get quiet before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything? It's like what David prayed. Lord, is there anything in me that offends you? Is there anything you don't like? Because this ain't my life. I'm just living my life for you.